It is okay to rejoice in your salvation here. Amen? Amen. We're in uh, John chapter 14. We are starting today the last discourse of Jesus proper to his disciples and his disciples only. He knows he's going to be dead in 24 hours and he's got a few super important things that he's going to tell them. Last week, uh, Jesus told them some very troubling things. The apostles, the disciples, right up to the very end, they didn't quite get it. They were still expecting, maybe in a more and more supernatural way as they went along, they were still expecting some sort of earthly kingdom and glory and position and power. And last week, Jesus told them, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be taken away from you. You're going to be alone. Peter's going to deny me. And probably all of you are going to deny me and be scattered as well, he told them some very, very scary things. And today, Jesus tells them, and he tells us, why it is that even in the midst of suffering and turmoil, that our hearts should not be troubled. So would you please stand one last time for the, out of respect for the reading of God's word. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So let's listen intently together to the reading of God's word. This is John chapter 14. Let your hearts, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word and the hope that is in these passages for us. Lord, we pray and I pray, Lord, that you would help us to not be anxious and to trust in you. And that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word in Jesus' name. Please be seated. So when I was 20 years old, 
a man offered to give me a peaceful heart. He was a Christian man. He was offering me Jesus. He said, if I would follow Jesus, I would have a peaceful heart. And I said, in all of my 20-year-old wisdom, why would anyone want that? I wanted action. I wanted adventure. I wanted excitement. I wanted fame. I wanted money. I wanted power. I wanted sexual conquest. I wanted altered states of consciousness. I wanted a lot of things, but a peaceful heart? That sounded just a little bit better than being in a coma, honestly. When I was 40, I discovered that I wanted all those things as a way to quiet the awful internal turmoil of my troubled heart. And I discovered through trial and error that none of those things worked. They actually made it worse. The troubled heart that Jesus is telling us not to have is really the malady of our age. If you look at the stats, it's incredible. I was looking at uh, prescriptions for antidepressants today now are the third most frequently used drug in the United States. Third. And I'm guessing that's including Tylenol and Advil and, you know, who knows what else. The third most frequently used drug in the United States is now an antidepressant. And it, what's even more astonishing than that is that the Scandinavian countries, which are supposed to be the models of prosperity and social perfection where every need is taken care of, skyrocketing off the charts. they using probably f- almost four times as many people use antidepressants in the Scandinavian countries as the United States. Maybe that's why they're so happy. But pharmacology is not the only way people try to calm the awful turmoil of their troubled hearts. Think about, they just think about the totality of human industry, consumerism, uh, the travel industry, workaholism, luxury items, technology, e-harmony, Christian mingle, you name it, or worse. The sheer human industry and capital that is invested in this project of calming the turmoil of the human heart is almost uncalculable. It probably accounts for almost everything we do as a people because because we so desperately want to be at peace. And we think these external things are going to bring it to us. At least that's, that's the sales pitch. Get this, you'll be happy. You'll have a peaceful heart. Everything will be okay. And yet Jesus tells us here in this passage that the solution to the troubled heart is not any of those external things, but the solution is something very simple. The solution is faith. But not wishful thinking faith. Not wish upon a star faith. Not faith is the way culture likes to present it, but faith as in a focus on true reality faith, a trusting and a submitting in the divine reality as it actually is rather than as we want it to be. It's a focusing on what is really real in the midst of an atmospheric cauldron of misinformation and false promises. And so Jesus says in this passage that we can have peaceful hearts because he is the way. In other words, he has created And the way through death. He has defeated death for us. 
and that he is truth, that he has brought to light divine reality, and that he is the life. He has brought the divine reality and the divine life to men. And so the big idea, the thesis, the one thing that Jesus wants us to know in this passage is that we can have peaceful hearts in the midst of suffering because Jesus has beat death, he has brought life, and he has made us channels of divine life. We can have peaceful hearts in the midst of suffering because Jesus has beat death, he has brought light, and he has made us to be channels of divine life. Let's look at that one part at a time. We can have peaceful hearts in the midst of suffering because Jesus has beat death. Look at John 14, verses 1 through 4. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions, or many rooms, sorry. This old King James kicking in there. (laughs) In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. Where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. One of my favorite illustrations to highlight the difference between the Christian faith and other faiths is something that I call pole vaulting to paradise. And the story goes like this. There's a, there's a pole vaulting contest to heaven. And the contestants are, let's say, me and let's say Daryl, and let's say Gandhi are all entered in this contest. And the contest, the, the, who, you have to win the contest, you have to pole vault your way into heaven. And so I go first, and, and uh, you know, I, I don't even clear the bar, right? I hit the bar, like, go down in a flame of, of defeat. Daryl, Daryl's a lot more holy than I am, so Daryl takes a running start, and he gets 18, 20 feet up in the air and springs over the bar, and then Gandhi, Gandhi comes up, and Gandhi, of course, is a very holy man, so he takes a big running start, hits the pole just right, he gets 50, 60 feet up in the air, and then he comes back down and hits the mat. Bang. Now, I love this story because it highlights two very important truths about why the Christian faith is different from any other. And the first is that there is an enormous chasm between God and man. There is an impenetrable wall between us and that wall is death and we cannot penetrate it. The distance is too great. It is too hard for us to penetrate. And the second truth that that brings out is that every other major religion tries to teach a way to penetrate that wall. But the problem is they underestimate the distance. It doesn't matter if Gandhi can get 60 feet in the air in a pole vault when the winning, when the necessity to win is the heavenly realms. Can't make it on our own. And so the big difference, the first thing that Jesus is trying to teach us here is that he did not come to teach a way. He is the way. He is the way. And how do we, how do we understand that? What does that mean to us? Well, if we talk in theology about Jesus being our mediator, which means that 
Jesus, mediator means the one who stands between two parties. And so in Jesus' case, Jesus is the mediator of our covenant with God. He is the one who stands between mankind and God. And that's true of who he is in his person as the perfect union of both God and man. He, in his very person, in his body, is the connection point between God and mankind through which spiritual power flows. He is, in his person, the way. But also in his works, what he's done is that he has made that way for us in his person. He just didn't teach us a way because no way was possible for us. The Bible says that if if there was a law that could be given that would have brought salvation to us, it would have been given, but it wasn't possible. And so Jesus, through his incarnation, through his life for us, meeting all the requirements of the law and his death, paying the penalty of our sin, His resurrection for our justification, proving to us, promising to us that we will be resurrected too, that we have God's favor, and his ascension into heaven where he's praying for us even now. All of those things are what bridged the gap between us and God. Because it wasn't a gap of distance, it was a moral gap. There was an unfathomable distance between the holiness and perfection of God and, and us. And Jesus bridged that gap as our mediator and he is now the way for man to come to God. It's not, Jesus doesn't say no one comes to the Father but through me because God is arbitrary and he just said, I only want this way. It's because Jesus is number one on a list of one. He is unique. There is no one else like him. There is no other union of God and man. There is no other founder of a religion who has completed the law for his people who has died for their sins, who has resurrected from the dead. He is absolutely unique. And so we get into heaven by our association with Jesus coming under his holiness, his protection, so that he is the way. Now y'all know, y'all know how it is getting in a hot bit. Uh, uh, if, if you were any of us, any of us in this room, guaranteed, if we went to an A-list Hollywood party, and we showed up and said, hey, I'm here for the party. What's the chances of any of us in this room getting in? Slim to none, right? But if you show up with Leonardo DiCaprio or you show up with Denzel Washington and Denzel says, hey, this is my man, he's with me, you get in. Not because of who you are, but you have just had Denzel's fame and fortune and glory transferred onto you and you got in because of that, right? That's understandable. The same thing it's with salvation. You walk up to the, the gates of heaven on your own, in your own holiness, in your own righteousness, in your own sinfulness, and you say to God, hey, let me in. Not gonna happen. But if you come with Jesus under his covering, under his holiness, with his righteousness given to you, Jesus says, this one is with me, and that is what gets us in. Jesus is the way. Now, why is that important? How does that give us peaceful hearts? It means because if Jesus has done everything for our salvation, that means that there's nothing left for us to do. We're safe now. You notice, I was just, even just the reading of this, as I was reading it right before the service, I realized that when Jesus, he says, Three times he he assures us that we will be with him. He says, 
four times. If it were not so, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? In other words, I'm telling you this because it's true. And, I, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that you may be with me also. He says over and over again to assure us that we have a place in heaven with him. The old King James that I spurted out, mansions, is, is, it doesn't mean palatial estate the way we take it. It's really a room. It's really a room or a dwelling place is a better definition of it. And what Jesus is saying is, because you are mine, you have a place in heaven. And it's, it's, it's secure. And that gives us peaceful hearts, right? Because it helps us to get through the suffering of this age. You know how when you have something that you're super excited about coming up, it helps like to get through the, the monotony of the day if you're really excited about it? Ever been on a really long plane trip? Maybe to Australia. I know, you know some of you have gone to Australia. I, I just, we went to China in January, 17 hours, all, all included. And, you know, I got on the plane. What do, you th- do you think that I was stressing out over the position of my seat so much? That I was the first thing I do, did I order new drapes for the window? Was I really concerned about the carpet or the interior color of the aircraft? No, not really. I mean, in fact, what I was doing was I was in a giant germ-filled tube for 17 hours. But the reason I could do it in relative comfort was I knew that we were going to China. I was super excited about that. And so the, the discontent, the minor irritations of being on a giant germ-filled tube for 17 hours just kind of faded away in the distance because I was so excited about getting to China. That's what Jesus is saying. We are going to heaven, and because of that, we can, we can weather the minor storms of this life because we can be excited about what's in our future. We have expectant hope of a glory to come. And it makes this life bearable and tolerable and allows us to have peace even here and now. So second thing, we can have peaceful hearts in the midst of suffering because Jesus has brought light. Look at John fourteen eight and 9. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. When the Apostle Paul went to the city of Athens, he went to a place called the Areopagus, which was a place where the philosophers gathered to debate philosophical ideas and he opened up his speech to them by saying by calling their attention to the fact that in the midst of their city which had temples to every god that you can conceive of there was one temple that he saw on his way in that was the temple to the unknown god and the reason the Greeks had a temple to the unknown god was because back in the day it was a very frightening proposition The gods were a very frightening proposition. You weren't really sure who they were, what they did, what they wanted. We had several conceptions of different gods, and so we did all these things that we could do and built all these temples to appease them, but there was always the chance that we didn't cover all the bases, and so the Greeks built the temple to the unknown god. It's like a monument to their uncertainty and to their their fear about the unknowability of, of God. 
The idea, the idea that you can just construct out of your imagination a God that serves you and without any worry of other gods is a very recent American idea based on consumerism. It has very little to do with reality. And so in the ancient world, there was a lot of fear and unknowability and concern about who God was. And Jesus, as the perfect revelation of God, has brought light. He's brought light to who God is. And Philip says to him, he says, Lord, in the, in the sense that, <clears throat> Philip says, show us, Lord. In other words, help us to know. Give us clarity about the Father and that it's in, that will be enough for us in order enough to stop our anxious hearts, to stop our troubled hearts and give us peace. And Jesus says, answers by saying, whoever has known me has known the Father and whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He makes two claims there. First, that whoever has known him has known the Father. How can that be? Let's do a thought, let's try a thought experiment for a moment. I want you to try to erase from your mind everything that you know about God from Christian theology. I mean, you can't do it, right? This is an impossible thing. It's as impossible as it was for Descartes to purge everything from his mind. And uh, our culture is so permeated with Christian ideals. But let's just try for a minute. Just Let's purge our minds of everything that we know about theology everything we know about God from Christian sources and ask, what can we know about God outside of Jesus? We could know that he was the creator. We could look at the creation, as we say in the Lord's Supper, and know that the order, the the, the complexity, the beauty, uh, all of those things point to the fact that there was an intelligent creator behind them, or we should be able to have that rational thought. And that tells us that he has ultimate power, that he has majesty, And the deeper we look and the deeper we find laws of nature and laws of mathematics and laws of logic, the more we become awestruck or should be at the immensity of the power of the being who created this universe so we can know he's powerful. But we can also know from the moral law that's in our hearts, we all have a general sense of right and wrong. We can also know something about the character of God, that he is absolutely perfect in justice, perfect in holiness, perfect in righteousness and that we are not and so outside of what we can know about Jesus what we can know about God is that basically he is big he is scary he is powerful and he is way out there beyond our comprehend beyond our ability to comprehend or know frightening thus let's build a temple to the unknown God just in case we missed something And what can we know now? Let's back it up. What can we know about God because of Jesus? There's a couple of crucial things we can know about God because of Jesus. We can know personal things about God. We can know that he loves us. We can know that he is merciful. We can know that he cares about his creation and he cares about his people because he cared enough to incarnate and come among us and to punch the hole through death and make the way for us by his own death. There's a great old book by a Puritan, John Owen, called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. It's a a succinct statement. The death of Jesus, the death of God, put, killed, 
death for us. We can know he's good. We can know that we can trust him. We can know that he loves us. It, 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 it takes the guesswork out of God. It, Jesus puts a human face on God and it's like an interface. It gives us a, a perfect revelation in a perfect way that we can understand, relatable. He has become a man to show himself to us. In fact, Paul says almost the same thing in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We can know these beautiful and personal things about God because of that. So, second promise that he makes also, though even more amazing, is that we are going to see God, that we should know God. He says, from now on, you will know him and you will see him. Not physical, visible sight, right? We know that. God is spirit. He cannot be seen. Paul says that God dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever or can see. But it's almost even better. This, the word for used here for sight is also used for like an experiential knowledge, an experiential um, it means to experience something by spiritual perception. In other words, we're not just learning. Jesus just hasn't just revealed facts about God so that we could talk about these things. He has revealed himself through the Spirit as he is to our spirit so that we are able to have personal, experiential relationship with the creator God of the universe through Jesus. That's huge, and it's different. How does this give us peaceful hearts? It means that even in the midst of our suffering, we know that there's a place for us in heaven and that there's just a short period of wait, and so we can, we get, we can be peaceful in the midst of suffering, but we also know that in this age, God has come to us, and he wants to, to be in relationship with us, to reveal even more and more about his perfection and his beauty so that we might know him and he know us, fully known, fully loved. That that's our experience in the world with God even now. I kept thinking about an analogy. It's, 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 it doesn't quite fit, but I'm gonna say it anyways, of an old married couple. <laughs> You know any super old married couples that know each other so well they can finish each other's sentences and they're just, they're just together? How did that happen? Because they walked through life together for decades and decades and decades and they have an experiential relational knowledge with each other and it's beautiful. And the Bible says that marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with his church. And so I think we can extend that a little bit and say that what God wants for us is for us to walk through this life not focusing on the, the craziness all around us but to keep our minds focused on Him, his, our relationship with Him, His pouring life into us and over the course of time get to the point where we are friends, familiar with, walking in step with God even in the midst of the, this evil age. And that's a beautiful thing that gives peace to our hearts. So number one, we can have a peaceful heart in the midst of suffering because Jesus has beat death. Two, we can have peaceful hearts in the midst of suffering because Jesus has brought light 
And three, we can have peaceful hearts in the midst of suffering because Jesus has made us channels of divine life. What does that mean? Look at uh, verses 12 and 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, and the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Those are some bold and amazing claims, aren't they? Does that get you excited to hear that? It should. Let's take the harder one first. Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Does that mean <laughs> that we have total creative and constitutive power over the created universe? Short answer, no. Praise God. If I had that power, you would be in trouble. <laughs> if you had that power, everybody else would be in trouble. Think of some of the prayers you prayed. Praise God that he does not answer our prayers according to our will. <clears throat> the answer is no, but uh, there are some important qualifiers on that statement. One that's given here is that it's anything done in Jesus' name or prayed in Jesus' name, meaning through his mediation with the Father, meaning that our prayers go through Jesus to the Father, but also that our prayers, any of our prayers that are according to his character, to his knowledge, his wisdom, etc., anything that Jesus would pray for us in that same situation, that we come in line with that and pray it, he guarantees to answer it. And second qualifier given here, anything that glorifies the Father and the Son, Jesus will answer. He will give a yes to any prayer that he deems will bring glory to God in the right way in the right time. And so the question is, well, doesn't this just cut out all the good stuff? What's the point, right? I mean, if I can't, there's all kind of stuff I want to pray for, but it might not necessarily fall under those qualifiers. Why is this any good at all? And the answer to that is that prayer is not just something that we do. It's something that reshapes us into the will of God. It reshapes us to the help us to pray for substantive things, things of eternal value. We've had in the ladle ministry that we have at the church here on Wednesdays, we've been doing a study through the Lord's Prayer. Um, and the most amazing thing about the Lord's Prayer I learned just two weeks ago is this. Y'all know that the Lord's Prayer is seven different petitions, right? Our Father who art in heaven, that's the preamble or the, the, the introduction. And then there's three uh, three um, petitions after that. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those are three petitions. And then three more after that. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then the closing petition is, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. What's amazing about the Lord's Prayer is that if you take those and you, and you posit questions to those petitions, it creates, it, it makes the Lord's Prayer, turns the Lord's Prayer almost into answers that teach us things and shape us into who, we, who do we think God is? 
What's our understanding of God? What should we as children of God, as our Father, desire most? And what do we need to make that happen on earth? And so the first line, you could ask the question, who is God? God is our Father who is in heaven. He's intimately with us in relationship, but he's also the all-powerful creator God of the universe. And then the first three petitions or requests are, what do we as God's children desire most? Number one, that his kingdom would come, not ours, that his will would be done, not ours, and that, we would, and that his will would be done, or that his name would be hallowed above all things, glorified above all things, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done. What do we need to do this? We pray that God would give us our daily bread, our meet, meet our material needs, that we would be forgiven and given forgiven hearts, forgiving hearts, and that he would not lead us into temptation, but lead us into righteousness and protect us from the enemy. And we know that he will be able to do this. We affirm that by saying at the end, we know you can do this because you have all power. Yours is the kingdom forever and ever. Amen. And so this prayer, what this brings out is that the Lord's prayer, it's shaping us into who we understand God to be and what our desires should be as God's children and what we really need in life. And the Lord's prayer is what he taught us, how he taught us to pray. And it is way better than for us to be praying about all our silly things or or temporary things that we think we need to be shaped by God to become into, into union with his will so that we are praying for things that are substantial and praying for things that have eternal value. Like what, you might ask. Well, the second thing Jesus says is, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. What does he mean? Does he mean miracles? That every believer will be able to do as many miracles as Jesus? Maybe. Although we, I think, greatly underestimate the sheer volume of the miracles that Jesus did because they are summarized in terse fashion so that we don't fixate on them because that's what we would like to do. There's all passages in the Gospels that said and they brought all their sick and Jesus healed them all. Huge groups of thousands. The closest we get to that is really Paul and Peter and some parts of Acts that are doing lots of miracles but there's a couple of, you know, he also says that whosoever believes will be able to do these great things and what is it that he's talking about? A couple of hints. First is in, in at, at verse 10, he says to Philip, he says, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. He just switched it up on us. First, he's talking about the words that he doesn't speak on his own authority, and then somehow he relates the fact that those words are related to the works in some, in some way, and we know, he's, he's implying that the Father produces his work through the Word, which we already know. In Genesis, he says, let there be light. Light. The Word of God is powerful. It, it creates the reality of which it speaks. And so in the book of Ephesians, it says, you are justified by faith. That's also the Word of God creating the reality of which it speaks. 
In John 6, 63, Jesus says to the disciples who are about to leave, he says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. In other words, the word that he spoke, the words were the medium through which the spirit brought eternal life to people. Spirit's doing the work, but Jesus is using words. You're already saying, I think what he's saying is, that he is giving us the same privilege. The most amazing miracle of all the Bible, of all the world, is the fact that the word of God brings dead spiritual people to life. And it happens all the time. On the day of Pentecost, Peter's very first sermon, 3,000 people were saved. And then the church kept adding and adding and adding as the apostles went out within a very short amount of time the entire Roman Empire had become Christian. Hundreds of thousands of people had come to life and it's circling the globe. It is works from, that are being produced by the word of the power of the Spirit that is greater than anything Jesus did on his life because he has gone to the Father and he sends his Spirit through us to do that work. So what he's saying is, this is the most amazing thing. If you're a Christian and the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you, it means that God has given us the power to be channels of life-giving power to other people. Real life. Imagine if God gave you the power to go to the hospital as he directed and heal people or bring people back from serious disease, even raise people from the dead. What would happen? It'd be great, and then 30, 40, 50 years later, they would die. Now imagine that God gave you the power to speak words and through the power of those words that you could bring supernatural, eternal life to people so that they would come alive and penetrate through the impenetrable wall of death through the way of Jesus and be with the Father forever and ever. That's the reality. That's what God has given us. He's given us life. And he's given us this mission in the world. Is, is this how we think about evangelism? When you're in the office and you worry about being ridiculed, do you say to yourself, I have words that God has given me to create spiritual life in dead people? Or do we worry about our reputations or the insults of the world? And I tell you the truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, when we exercise this and God uses us to bring spiritual life to one of his people, the world might insult us, the world may shun us, but there are a billion angels and saints in heaven that are rejoicing. Our people, our people who exist in the supernatural realms are rejoicing at everyone. Amen? Amen. So what do we learn from this in conclusion? Number one, We can have peaceful hearts because Jesus is the way to heaven. He has promised that we have a place there. And so we can be excited about our future hope even as we wait in unpleasant conditions. Two, we can have peaceful hearts because Jesus has revealed to us what God is really like. And what he's really like is that he loves us and he cares for us. And that even though we can't see him with our eyes, we can see him with our hearts 
and we can grow in our experiential relationship with him, even now in this life. And three, we can have peaceful hearts because Jesus is shaping us into his perfect character, shaping us to be more like him and less like us, which is good. (laughs) And he has granted to us the unimaginable privilege of being channels of life to bring dead people to life where we will enjoy eternity together forever. That's what we're doing. Amen? Amen. We thank you, Lord, for your blessings upon us. We thank you for your word, which tells us these amazing things that we would never guess on our own. Lord, without the gospel, without the revelation of Jesus, we would be afraid of you, and rightfully so. But you have revealed yourself to us and your son, You've let us know that you love us. You've let us know that your great power is, is at work for our good and for our salvation. And you've given us these amazing privileges. Lord, I pray that we as a church would take advantage of who we are. I pray that we would be excited, that we would be energized, that we would be de- desperate to go out and to teach people about Jesus and tell people about the life that they might have, Lord. And I pray that you would bless us with much fruit. I pray for everyone in our church, Lord, that every one of us would make one disciple this year and that you would bless us with the joy that comes from being partakers of the divine nature and life and also as givers and participants in the ministry of reconciliation. And so, Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.